1 Kings chapter 20. Finished up chapter 19 last week. Another rip-roaring discussion afterwards. You guys have been real fun with that. But we move on here, and Elijah is actually not part of the chapter. He disappears for a little while, but uh, we do still have some prophets who show up. They have some things to say. Verse 1 of chapter 20. Now, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him. Thirty-two kings are with him. He's got a pretty good army by himself, but he's got 32 other kings with him. You are Israel, aren't you feeling a little ganged up on? 32 kings were with him with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. Then the messenger came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house, the house of your servants. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will, they will put it in their hands and take it. Now, servants, does that mean just the servants of his house, or does that mean everybody in Israel? I'm not exactly sure on that. You can make a case, I guess, for both. But what you have is the war has been going on. Other cities had already fallen. He is besieging the capital at this point. And whether Ahab is just being a coward, which would not... I've seen this actually said about him, that he's just being cowardly and giving in. That's not Ahab, though. Ahab has been a pretty powerful warrior as far as uh, kings, kings go in Israel, and his father was as well. I don't think that's quite the case. It would seem like he is willing to give in to preserve the land and the, the people in the land. I think that's uh, more in line with, with what's going on. I can't say that for sure, but it sure would seem that way. So the king of Syria basically says, I want all your riches. I want the, your prettiest wives. Uh, as far as we know, I don't know of anyone else besides Jezebel. I don't know what you would classify her. And then all the, whatever kids he wants, he's just going to come in and take them. I guess he's going to come in and take all the well-behaved ones and leave the, him with the, the brats. Now, Ben-Hadad, if you get a history of uh, Syria here, and I tried to delve into some of it for us, there are actually three Ben-Hadads in the time frame of Syria. Uh, possibly two, or uh, possibly only two, but it uh, looks like probably three. There was Ben-Hadad one, which actually, if there is a difference between one and two, he was the king before this one. This would be Ben-Hadad two. There is also going to be a Ben-Hadad three, who will come up later. But when Elijah had that meeting with God, you remember he told him he was supposed to anoint three people. One was his successor in Elisha, and the other was Hazael, which was supposed to be king instead of Ben-Hadad. Now, he doesn't do anything about that. For the rest of his time, he doesn't do anything about that. And we, we've talked about that Elisha is the one who anoints him. But if you go to the story, Elisha doesn't actually anoint him to be king. Nor does Elisha ever pursue him. Elisha is pursued by, the, uh, by this particular Ben-Hadad because of a disease that he has. And he sends by way of Hazael. And that's the interaction that we have between Elisha and Hazael. And Hazael goes from there to uh, kill this guy and usurp the throne. And when we get to that point, we'll, we'll have some stuff from history, some, uh, some of the writings of people that verify that the Bible was right and what, what had gone on. But at any rate, it, it seems that Syria wants war. They don't want them to surrender. They want them to be annihilated. That idea of Israel being wiped out apparently is not new to just today. So he accepts the first message, and when it's increased, obviously accepting the second one isn't going to do anything because then they're just going to send back another one and we're just going to increase it some more. So verse 7, So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you sent for to your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. 
And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Now he's uh, showing a great bit of restraint here. I think a lot of people, if you, if you got this kind of a message, you say, well, I'm not doing anything. And just sent that on back. And if we're going to go to war, let's go, let's go to war. But he doesn't. He says, if you want to go back to the first request that you made, we'll go ahead and go back to that. Which I think is remarkable when you think of who Ahab is. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said, This is the greatest pre-battle line ever. Let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. (laughs) I love that line. I have quoted that line in many a hockey game. (laughs) In particular with Lamar. Lamar and I would sometimes come and we would face off. We both both play left-handed. I think he's right-handed. I'm right-handed, but we both play hockey left-handed. So whenever there's a face-off, you have to get two left-handers up or two right-handers up. And so if he's on the opposite team, which generally he was, then we were facing off each other. He just starts talking trash. And I just throw this verse of scripture out there to him. And and, uh, the rest of the people in the place have no idea what we're even doing, but that's okay. But this is just a, a, it's a great line. It's It's a shame it's not by a better king. But it is a great line. If you ever want one to pull out on people that are just boasting a little too much, you go ahead and pull that one on out and you use that. First Kings chapter 20. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he and the kings were drinking at the command post that he said to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. So here you are, you're getting ready to go into a battle. And the king who has gathered all these 32 other kings are having a drinking party. I just don't think that's the best preparation for going into a battle. And it seems like that everybody in history who's ever had a drinking party before they've gone into battle has lost. Go through the Bible and you'll find that several times there are people who are having a big battle come up and they're involved with the drinking. And in the book of Daniel, you have one, the guy who was inside the city was doing the drinking party. In this one, you have the guy who is outside the city doing the drinking party. doesn't matter whether you are inside or outside the city, apparently. So he says to his guys, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. Suddenly, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, is that going to convince him that, he's, that God is God? If fire from heaven didn't do it, and all the other things that had gone on, then this is probably not going to do it either. So Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the, of the provinces. Then he said, Who will set the battle in order? And he answered, You. Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. So he, uh, he gets this prophet who meets him. Now understand this, Ahab never seeks the advice of the Lord. But prophets have sought him. There was one time he was in a battle with Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat asked for a prophet of the Lord and they went and they they got them then. But generally he does not ask for it, does not seek it, but this one, the prophet came and found him and gave him this word. Now, Ahab then goes on and he says, well, who's going to lead this battle? And he asked for some instructions. He gets instructions from the prophet as to what to do. And he follows them, which is amazing for a guy who really seems to have no respect for God, that he would do that. But he, he uh, got to how the battle was to be set in order. He got who was supposed to lead it. Ahab was supposed to lead it. He probably liked hearing that. Verse uh, 16, so they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. So they haven't moved from their drinking party. They're telling everybody else to get ready, but they're still over there drinking and they're getting drunk. The young leaders of the provinces went out first and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol and they told him saying, men are coming out of Samaria. So he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. And if they have come out for war, take them alive. So he's basically saying, take them alive. (laughs) So I don't care where they're coming out here, we'll just take them alive. Then... These young leaders of the provinces went out of the city 
with the army which followed them. So that's, that's the good guys, the, the Israelites, well, we'll call them the better of the two bad sides. We'll put it to you that way. Then those young leaders of the provinces went out of the city because they were in the city of Samaria with the army which followed them and each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. So they took a small number of, of people and pursued a great multitude of people and defeated them. Defeated them pretty handily. Now, it started out because that small group of folks who went out killed the people that they were set up to, to, to go out with. And that started it up. The rest of the folks inside, all the leaders, are drunk. That doesn't help your cause when your leaders are drunk. Probably not going to get off to a real good, real good part there. So that battle is over, and we're going to get a second word. That was the first word we had that, that came to him. We're going to get a second word. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go strengthen yourself, take note. And see what you should do, for in the spring of the year the king of Syria will come up against you. Now, not a whole lot of specifics on this, but a prophet, and the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Now we assume this is the same prophet. Go strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do, for in the spring of the year the king of Syria will come up against you. So he's told to make preparations. And the one before, there was no time for preparation, they just came after them. And they needed a miracle, and God provided a miracle. But in this one, he says, get ready, because in the spring, this same king is going to come after you again. So do what you need to do. And it doesn't give him any specifics on what the, he should be doing, but apparently he was supposed to go out there and figure that out. You would think that uh, the best thing to do would be then to call in a prophet of God. All right, what's God want me to do to get ready? But I doubt that he did that. Verse 23, Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills because they defeated us in the hills is what he's saying therefore they are stronger than we but if we fight against them in the plains surely we will be stronger than they so do this thing dismiss the kings each from his position and put captains in their places and you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost horse for horse and chariot for chariot then we will fight against them in the plains surely we will be stronger than they and he listened to their voice and did so now, this is, their, this is what they come up with. Well, we lost in the hills. So their gods must be gods of the hills because that's what we lost. Surely we should not have lost in this battle. So their gods were fighting for them and they must be gods of the hills because in their belief, there were gods of the plains, there were gods of the hills, there were gods of all kinds of things. That's what they believed. Just because somebody believes something does not make it true. And we see that an awful lot here in this, this day and age. A lot of people believe, well, I just think, well, I just believe. Well, if two people love each other, well, if people want to do this, well, if people aren't hurting anyone, no, what does God say? It, we're responsible for God's truth, not for ours. Even as Christians, in church every Sunday, it is our responsibility to find out what is God's truth, not for God to come along and line up with us. And I'll tell you what, more Christians have to get a hold of that. We know the world has to get a hold of that. We expect that the world has to get a hold of that. But there's a whole lot of folks in the Christian church, people, who they, they believe God ought to be on their side. This is what I believe, and God just ought to do it. Well, that is a wrong idea, and that's not right. But that's what these folks are thinking. There's a gods of the hills, there's gods of the plains. And God stands up there, you know, regardless of who Ahab is and who Ahab is worshiping and what Israel is doing, he says, you guys are... Do not call me a God of the hills. I'll show you what kind of a God I am. So God is now doing this for his own reputation and has nothing to do with Ahab. So the reason that he's showing up is for his reputation. Understand this about God. God will defend his honor. God will defend his reputation. And just as you, uh, you look at the battle that David had with Goliath, David knew God will defend his reputation. And when he, heard, when he heard Goliath say these things against his God, he knew, and you're toast. It doesn't make any difference who comes out. God is a God who stands up for these things. And so he just knew he can come on out and do that. When you encounter people, and I'll tell you what, if you are ever encountering people, this is a strategy you could employ if you ever want to sometime. But if you're encountering people at work, if you are encountering people in, in different places, and they have beliefs, 
get them to state their belief in a defiant way against God. They'll do it. They'll do it. Get them to do that. What, do you think they got... Get them a question and get them to state their defiant belief against God and then just step back and say, well, God... <laughs> and, and God will show up. God will do it. And say so. Be like David. Get up there and, and, and command it. Even Ahab, sinful Ahab, is able to proclaim victory before it even happens. We certainly ought to be able to do the same thing. So this is what they're going to do. Verse 26. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. Can you get the picture? Two little flocks of goats. Massive countryside of people. They are outnumbered again. Now he was told to get ready. But you know, even if they get ready, he said, all right, everybody have babies and have boys. If he says that right away, they're not ready to go into battle. There's only so much you can do to muster the people that you need. So his preparations had to be in other areas. But they got as much of an army ready as they could. This is what they could muster together. And this is what they brought out. In the spring of the year, just as the prophet said, Ben-Hadad took all the Syrians, everything he could get, and came out against them. Verse 28. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel. Who? A man of God. Again, we have no idea who this person's name is. It would seem to be a different one from the one before. Because we're using different terminology for, for each one. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Why is God doing it? Because of what the Syrians said. I'll tell you what, folks. Get your enemies to hang themselves. <laughs> Just get them to do it. They'll, they'll do it because they're defiant against God. Go ahead and get them to state these things. And um, it will, your situation will change with them. All right, where are we? 28. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. This astounds me. You have a huge multitude over here. And two little specks over here. Why are you waiting? You've got to keep feeding all those multitudes of people over here as long as you're encamped in the battle. Why not run the battle, get them home, let them feed themselves? But you've got this huge multitude over there. You've got to have water and food for the seven days that they're just sitting there looking at each other. Do not know why they're sitting there and doing that, but that's what they're doing. So seven days they, they do that. Um, and they camped opposite each other for seven days. So it was on the seventh day the battle was joined and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. They did not have 100,000 foot soldiers themselves. They had two little flocks. <laughs> That's not 100,000 in a, in a flock. They killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. Now, how many of the people that Ahab brings are God-fearing? <laughs> Might have been a few, right? There, we knew there was at least 7,000 in the land who hadn't bowed the knee. Some of them might have been in the army. <clears throat> but how many, we don't know. And apparently it's not important because the anointing of God came upon every single one of them to kill Syrians. And they did. 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. It, gets, it goes on from there. But the rest fled to Aphek, into the city. Then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. So of the people that are left, you all get into the city, you think you're safe, and a whole wall falls on top of 27,000 people. No reason for this wall to fall. It doesn't say anybody's pushing against it. It doesn't say there's an earthquake. It doesn't say a storm came up. It just says we're all in there, and all of a sudden this wall falls. How does the wall fall? <laughs> So God is basically saying, I am the God of the hills. I am the God of the valleys. I am the God of the plains. And I am the God of the cities. <laughs> you can go nowhere that I am not God. 
I can use little groups of people like this and I can use walls that you built yourself. <laughs> well, that's got to scare you. Because <laughs> that's quite a statement to be making. Hmm. And Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city into an inner chamber. I guess he thinks it may be in the inner chamber. <laughs> Things would be better. So he, uh, he decides at this point that the battle's not going well. And maybe we should ask for a treaty. Ask for some peace. So verse 31. Then his servant said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put on sackcloth around our waist and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they wore sackcloth around their waist and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Is he still alive? <laughs> he is my brother. Why he does this, I have no idea. Now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him and then they quickly grasped on this, at this word and said, Your brother Ben-Hadad. So he said, Go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he had him come up into the chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father I will restore. And you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. So the treaty basically allows Israel to become financially prosperous at the hands of Syria. And he says, all right, we'll make some money. This is good. Now, a certain man of the sons of the prophets, again, unidentified, and different terminology from the other two. So it would seem that this is a third prophet in the story. Different yet. And so God has called up three prophets not named Elijah. So Elijah, you're having trouble being used? Step aside. I got one, I got two, I got three. <laughs> now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor, by the word of the Lord, strike me please. And the man refused to strike him. Now what would you do if someone, a neighbor of yours came up and said, hit me. <laughs> what would you do? Most of us say, what's wrong with you? I don't want to hit you. I'm not mad with you. I have nothing to, to, to go on. But notice the terminology here. Said to his neighbor, by the word of the Lord, strike me, please. So somehow it was communicated to the neighbor that the Lord was behind this and that the Lord was saying that he should strike him. And he didn't do it. Probably he didn't do it because he had no gripe against this particular prophet. Probably didn't want to do anything to this particular prophet. Probably knew he was a prophet. And maybe had some respect for the things of God. But whatever it was, he refused to strike him. He refused to obey a word of the God. A word from God. Now think about this. If God gives you a word to strike somebody... <laughs> now don't go around hitting people and say, the, the word of the Lord came to... <laughs> that's not, probably not going to fly there but the man refused to strike him verse 36 then he said to him because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord surely a, as soon as you depart from me a lion shall kill you and as soon as he left him a lion found him and killed him now don't get the idea that every time a prophet comes out and says hit me that if you don't you will die by the way of a lion there is something being communicated here and that is when God speaks you need to listen and you need to do what he says because a whole lot of disobedience has been going on. And this is supposed to be a, a testimony. So a lion found him and killed him. And he found another man. And he said, strike me please. We have no idea that this other man knows anything that happened to the first man. He might. But he might not. There's really no reason to indicate that he did. But he said, strike me please. But this guy is not labeled as a neighbor. He just apparently came up to somebody. Maybe this is a guy who had violent tendencies. <laughs> We don't know, but he came up to another one and said, Strike me, please. So the man struck him and inflicted a wound. Then the prophet, prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. So he took uh, the wound that he had, put a bandage over it. Can you imagine getting a word from God as a prophet that you have to go out and get injured? How many of you want to talk to God about that? Wait a minute, God, i got to get injured, so i got to put a big bandage on? I mean, what did he strike him with? Did he strike him with a sword? 
Now, this is right after the battle. He got together everybody he could to go into battle with. So the guy he got is, could very well have been out of the battle. It's very possible. He's in that area. And probably any man who can carry a sword is, is put into the battle. Because the, the, the entire nation, their fate is at hand. That's what they're looking at. We could all die. So they all probably went into battle. So the man struck him and inflicted a wound. Then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road, disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle. And there a man came over and brought a man to me. And he said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You have decided it. And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Now this tells you a whole lot. This guy has had dealings with Ahab before. This guy has brought a word to Ahab in the past. Not just Elijah. This man has done it. Often enough that the king will recognize him. And that's why he has to have the bandage over him so that he, he can't, be, can't be seen. Because if he recognized him as a prophet, he wouldn't answer the same way. So he wants to say, look, I was out there in the battlefield. Somebody, one of my superiors came and they said, guard this man. And I was supposed to guard him with my life. And, uh, well, I was busy about doing some things and didn't really say what they were, just you know, here and there. And I turned around and the guy was gone. And I, I let him go. A guy I was supposed to guard and I let him go. And they had pronounced judgment on him. Well, you judged yourself. Your life for his. So here's what he gets. Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. That's pretty quick. Pretty short. Not a whole lot there. But basically he's saying this. I gave you somebody. You were not supposed to let him out of your hand or out of your out of your sight. You were supposed to take care of this, and you didn't do it. So Ahab is supposed to kill Ben Hadad. Elijah is supposed to have already anointed his successor, and he didn't do it. So now you got two people who have basically let things slide: Elijah in not anointing the successor, and in Ben Hadad being let go by Ahab. Ben-Hadad is supposed to be dead now. They're supposed to wipe them out. Supposed to wipe out the people that are there. They don't, and in just a few more years, they're going to have another big battle with these guys in which Ahab will die. And Ben-Hadad will continue to live. He will continue to live up into the, uh, a number of chapters into Second Kings. That will happen. I believe Second Kings after chapter 8 is when his successor finally meets up with Elisha. And then after that, he, uh, he rises up and kills him. But understand, this is, what, this is how God laid this out. So that Syria was not supposed to be an issue. They weren't supposed to be, be coming around. But they do. So Ahab speaks his own judgment. Doesn't this sound similar to another story we remember in the Bible? Remember David? How the whole story come out? And David pronounced his own judgment? But remember David's response? David, you are the man. And what does David say? I have sinned. I have sinned. He repents. Look at what happens with, uh, with Ahab here. Verse 41. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased. There is a difference between repentance and being sullen and displeased. David was repentant. He is sullen and displeased. So he comes back home unhappy. Even though they had a great victory, he comes back home not very happy. Now what we see here is a, a hard condition. How many times are we all dealing with unsaved people? We're dealing with people like Ahab in our, in our lives. We're dealing with people that are um, uh, sinful that are hard to the truths of God, that are hard to the things of God, that don't want to respond. How many of you have people in your life, they do not want to respond to the things of God? 
and, and they're hard. And how do we do it? How do we deal with these folks? We've got to understand the heart condition and the big picture in the Word of God about how to deal with people with hard hearts, with people that refuse the truth of God's Word. Because a lot of times we're going about it wrong. And we're trying to accomplish the wrong things. So I wrote these things in your, your outline. I've actually given these to you a number of years ago, but pulled them back out of the archives and brought them here for you again. First off, the heathen condition. They are, the people that have hard hearts, they are heathen. They are not godly. Their hearts are hard. That's how the Bible describes it. They do not see a need to change to a standard they do not accept. Heathens do not see a need to change to a standard they do not accept. How many of y'all know we have a standard in the Word of God that the world does not accept? They do not feel a need to change to that. You've got to understand this is their mentality. Can't necessarily change that. They do not accept what they cannot see or understand. They don't accept it. They don't. They actually do in some places, but as far as the truth that you're trying to say, if they can't see and understand it, they're not going to accept it. You could tell them that all the world uh, started, you know, in some pool of junk and just all of a sudden life came out of it. And they don't see or understand that, but they'll accept it. But that takes a whole lot of faith to, to, to do that. Um, well... But just, just because you believe it and just because you know it to be true doesn't mean that they're going to accept it on that. And you, you just got to get over it. That's just the way that it's going to be. Uh, what truths they resist must be proved to their standard. You got to prove what truths they don't think are, are right. You got to prove it to their standard. Not yours. You got to prove it to their standard. Truth is subjective and situational, not, u- not universal. You look at universal truth. Whatever God says is universally true. But the heathen folks don't do that. They look at, well, it's wrong to steal unless you have no food. Unless this is going on. It's wrong to kill unless this is going on. And they'll have conditions for which those things are are coming about. Absolute truth, they don't believe in. Something cannot be absolutely true all the time. Outward actions are born of convenience and not always character. They may do something because it's convenient for the moment. You are doing something because of the character that is in you. They don't follow the same pattern. So you've got to understand their thinking is different from yours. They're not going to line up with your thinking. And neither should you line up with theirs. You're not going to be able to do that. Now, here's some things when you're dealing with with folks that are unsaved. Don't argue. Don't argue. You're not going to argue them into the kingdom of God. It it, it just won't happen. They may entertain you for a little while, but they'll eventually toss you out. Remember Paul over there in Corinth? They got into a great arguing match. They actually enjoyed it. But nobody got saved. Nobody got helped. Don't argue. Don't argue or soften the truth. Well, if I just soften what the Word of God says here, they'll accept it, and then maybe they can get to a place where they can... No, don't soften the truth. Don't apologize for God. God's truth is God's truth. God said it. If God said it, declare it. We got three prophets who came in here. They all brought a word over to Ahab. None of them softened it. Don't soften what God says. If God says this is wrong, then this is wrong. You don't have to make apologies for God. You don't have to make apologies for his word. It's simple. As a heathen, you can either choose to obey God's word. You can choose to disobey God's word. It is totally up to you. If you don't want to obey God's word, if you don't want to learn about God's word, I won't tell you about it. It's up to you. I don't have to tell you about God's word. You don't have to listen. If you don't want to hear, that's fine. I'm going to proclaim it. If you don't want to listen, well, I'll go on to somebody else who wants to listen. That's all there is to it. Don't argue or soften the truth. And don't change for them. Now, there is a thing about being all things to all people. 
And that is, you know, don't, don't let your personality be abrasive to them. Don't let your personality be a hindrance. But don't change the standards of God's word. Don't change what you live by. You know, some people think, well, I have to cuss in order to get some of these people to listen to me. No, you don't. You don't have to do that. Don't change what you are doing. Don't swallow that type of thinking because you don't have to do that. Be who you are. Did Jesus change his outward behavior to make tax collectors at home? No, he stayed who he was. And they still were at home with him. And they will, they will be that way with you. Don't argue or soften the truth and don't change for them. It's an important principle to get down. We are not here to persuade people of the truth but to proclaim it. Understand your call. Your call is to proclaim the truth, not persuade. You just got to proclaim it. It's a whole lot easier to do the job that God has given us when we understand it. Your job is to proclaim the truth. When you proclaim the truth and they don't accept it, what did Jesus tell you to do? Move on to the next city. Move on to someplace else. What did Jesus do if they didn't accept him? He moved on to the next city. So if they don't accept you, move on to the next one. Stop trying to hound them. Stop trying to keep... You're not there to persuade them. You're there to proclaim. Let God's blessings be on your life. Let them see your peace about the things that are going on. Let them see the way that you are handling life and let that attract them. If it doesn't, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's more on the way that you're living the, the life. But don't worry about about softening up the message of the gospel. The message is what it is. Sin is sin. Not all sin is equal. That's the wrong truth that has been proclaimed in churches. Not all sin is equal. There are some sins that are greater than other sins. And some sins carry a greater punishment. I just know that truth exists. I don't know what is a greater place in hell as far as punishment is concerned. Once you're in hell, you would think that it's bad. But apparently there are inner parts of hell. And I guess it's better to be on the outer part of hell than it is to be on the inner part of hell. I don't know. I'm not intending to go. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to tour a hell. I don't want to find out. Well, what are the, what are the worst sections? of the, uh, <laughs> What are some of the better? I don't really care. I don't intend to ever get down there. That's up, to, that's up to management. I just know that there's different levels of punishment because if you do certain things to, to young innocent children, there's something better. There's something much, much worse. If you do things that deceive others and lead others into a life of sin, what does Jesus say to the Pharisees? You've made yourselves ten times. Ten times more fit. I don't want to be them and they're, where they're going to in, in, in hell. And hell's not the final resting place. The lake of fire is. Which is worse? How can it be worse than hell? I don't know. I'm not going to find out. <laughs> I don't want to go down there and see. <laughs> you know, we, th- we, we hear that parable of uh, Lazarus and looking over and the, we're going to see the people in, in hell. You won't. You won't see people in hell. Because you're going to be in a completely different place. Hell is on the inside of the earth. Abraham's bosom was on the inside of the earth. As long as people were in Abraham's bosom, they could see into the, uh, the other chamber. But that place is gone. Jesus took all those captives up to heaven. It's empty. There's no one in paradise anymore. They're all in heaven. The only one that inhabits that is hell. And you can't see them from heaven. <laughs> Glory to God. <laughs> and they can't see you. You're going to be in heaven. Then after that, you're going to be in the millennial reign. And then after that, we go on to the new kingdom and the, the new heaven and new earth. And you won't be anywhere. Where the lake of fire is? I don't know where the lake of fire is. If hell could be in the heart of the earth, lake of fire might be the sun. It might be another sun. It might be a special place that God just made just for the lake of fire. I don't need to know. I don't care to know. Because I'm not going there. <laughs> I'm not going to take a tour. I'm not going to, hey, can you, can you show me? I don't care what it looks like. <laughs> and so what we've got to do is just understand we are here to proclaim truth. Sure, we explain it to the people who, who want. Jesus explained it to, to folks. 
but you're not here to persuade. I can't persuade them to believe. Well, I don't believe that. Well, then I guess you won't believe it. I do. Have fun with what you believe. But understand, when you get to heaven, your truth is meaningless. If there is a God, like we believe there's a God, you've got to answer to Him. He's not answering to you. <laughs> and just go on. Be confident. Because we are. We're confident. We know the truth of God's Word is the truth of God's Word. That's all we, we got to do. But there's going to be a lot of heathen people that you're going to encounter. There are a lot of Ahabs. Now, Ahab accepted a lot of these words. I don't know why. He's generally pretty hard to these things. But these ones he, he did accept. We're going to find some people and at times they may accept. At times they may not. It's not on you. It's not on the second prophet who gave him the word. And he came back and he didn't fulfill it. He didn't wipe out the enemy. That's not his, that's not his fault. He proclaimed, he said what God said to say. Some, have you ever had it where you've, you had something from God, you shared it with people and they still got themselves in trouble? Don't you sometimes, well, maybe if I would have said it a little bit different. How did God tell you to say it? Say it that way. Let it go. Just because you said it to them doesn't mean they're going to listen. There are some people that have to go through some tough things before they'll turn themselves around. But you're not here to, con- you're not here to persuade. You're not here to convince. I just, I just shared it recently, but I love that story Brother Hagin shared when he told that uh, one person, he said, I'm not praying for you anymore. You'll shake some people up, you tell them that. What do you mean you're not praying for me anymore? You, don't re- you refuse the Word of God. Why should I pray for someone who refuses the Word of God? I have a reason to. When you accept the Word of God, I'll pray for you again. You let me know about that, okay? <laughs> and you go on. That's, a, that's, that's all you can do. Sometimes, folks, you've got to shock people. You've got to shock them. Getting, the, getting them back. If, as long as you coddle them, they're going to keep on going the way they're going. You've got to shock them some. What, and, and God will tell you some things to do that will shock them. And it will be hard for you to do. Because your heart's, oh, I, but I love them so much. Oh, I, but I care about them. Oh, I don't want to see them go that way. And God says, well, if you really love them, you do this. Hello. Come on, we got some folks out there. They're not receiving the word of God. We take it on ourselves. What did I do? Now, you think about this. Jesus grew up with three heathen brothers. Or was it four? Four, four? four heathen brothers. As far as the sisters go, I don't know if any of them believe, but I know his brothers didn't believe until he died and resurrected. Four heathen brothers. He had Mary and Joseph for, husband, for the parents. How, how good of a job do you think they did? Mary and Joseph. <laughs> I think they did a pretty good job. Four of them didn't believe in Jesus. How good of a Jew they were, I don't know. But they didn't believe in Jesus. They rejected it. Go through the Word of God. You find some, some good parents. How many uh, people in uh, David's family rejected God? Yeah. How about Adam and Eve? Yeah. How about Noah? Yeah, you got, you got some good people in the Word of God who had some pretty ugly people in their family. Don't, worry, don't get all shook up about that. Go to God. God, what am I supposed to say? You got folks over at work and they're not listening they're putting pressure on. Do not change. But be sweet about it. You don't have to be ugly. Just be sweet. This is who I am. And if they, they're trying to get... How many of you, you know what the pressure we have going on? How many of you are in places and they're trying to get you to believe that gay marriage is okay? And they're, trying, they're putting pressure on you that gay marriage is okay and you just need to accept it. So, look, am I putting pressure on you that you have to accept that... Um, Man and wife is the only way to go? Am I putting any pressure on you to believe that? Well, no. Then why are you putting pressure on me? If that's what you want to believe, go ahead and believe it. Just turn it back around. Don't just, don't just sit back there and just take it. Put, it. put it in front of them. Do not change. What God has shown you to be the truth, hold to it. Hold to it. And, and do that. Now, how many of y'all, you have some relatives, you have some people at work, and they're following these wrong paths, they're heathen, they got a heathen mindset, and then they want to come to you for help. Right? I need some money, I need some help, I need whatever, and you're just going to 
phone, well, if I help them, then maybe they'll be sensitive to the gospel and you know, maybe they'll come along. No, they won't. They just want to use you. Now, you do this. If God says, go and help them, you go and help them. If God doesn't say, go and help them, don't. Don't. Now, they ask you, well, why not? Well, let's see. We sit over here at work. You harass me all day long about what I believe. You curse up my God. You take his name in vain. You pronounce all these, these uh, things that you know I, I don't believe in. You put this stuff up on your desk. And when you have a need, you come and you ask me for help when you're doing all this to the God I serve. Help yourself. That's hard to do, isn't it? Hmm. Did Jesus help the Pharisees? They came over and said, hey, can you help us move? <laughs> well, what would Jesus do? <laughs> would he do that? When the Pharisees came out to get baptized by John, what did he say? Man, who told you to come out here so that you get saved? Get back over there someplace. <laughs> He's mad at them for coming on out. He didn't want to help them out in this thing. You've got to realize, folks, there are going to be some people in your life. Maybe they're not as bad as they have. Maybe they're not as bad as some of the idolaters that are they're in, but they're messing with your life. Exerting pressure on you to change. Do not change. Stay who you are. Stay loving. Stay kind. Stay nice, but don't feel like you've got to help out everybody. Don't feel that way. I heard Doug Jones, remember, I think, he, I think he did this when he was out years ago. He's coming back out, you all know. He's coming back out in October. I don't know that he'll get into this story, but uh, I believe he taught this. I know he taught it when we were down there at Raymond, and he was, uh, he was teaching us, what happens if a son or a daughter falls out of favor with you? What is the first thing you pull back on? You know what he pulled out? He pulled out his wallet. What is the first thing you pull back on as a parent when your son or your daughter gets nasty, gets mean, gets hard? What's the first thing you pull back on? Aren't you a little stingier with the, with the money? But when they're loving and they're kind and they're helpful, what's the first thing you want to do? <laughs> is there anything I can help you with? Is there anything I can, I can do? Yeah. Yeah. What happens when people fall out of favor with God? What does he say in the Word of God? Five stages of, of judgment. It affects their purse. It affects their wallet. It affects their money. The rains don't come. The harvest doesn't come. The enemies come and take what they have. There's five stages of it. It all has to do with their money. Yep, it does. When your kids are real little, not so little that they don't know what money is. My little granddaughter's almost two. She likes money. She's in, she, her favorite pastime right now is going out in my truck. That's it. Just going out in the truck and driving and pushing the buttons. And every time she's over, uh, she wants to go out into the truck. Make sure I have my keys so I can unlock because she wants to go in the truck. She wants to do stuff in the truck. Well, she was in there and she saw a dime on the floor pad. Well, she had to get all the way down there and to get it. So I just figured, well, we'll just put it back in where all the, other, where all the dimes and quarters, you know, you have a place in your, your car, you put the dimes and the quarters and stuff you need in case you need some cash money. Well, I got that in mind, too. You know, most people use it, or most people used to use it for the cigarettes, ashes, and stuff like that. But um, I just opened it up. We put the coins in there. Sometimes I put some dollar bills in there and stuff like that, just so, you know, you have some, something there. Well, I happened to have some dollar bills in there. I'm just thinking it was coins in there. So let's put that back with the other ones. And as soon as I said that, I said, oh, no, this is not going to end well. Because <laughs> she likes money. <laughs> so I opened it up, and she sees a dollar. <laughs> Ooh, she says. <laughs> she already knows a dollar is good. <laughs> Two years old. Pulls out that dollar. We're not giving that dollar back. We're not putting that stuff back in there. No, sir. We put the the dime in our, in our pocket and we took the, um, the dollar, we folded it up and we put it in the pocket. <laughs> Taking that home. <laughs> two, two years old. Two years old, we got, we got money. But you know, when they get a little bit older, you know, the seven, eight, and they want to buy stuff and uh, you don't want to buy everything for them, what do you try and do? 
Use money as a motivator to do the behaviors that you want. All right, then why don't you keep doing that? Why don't we keep doing that with other folks? But you see, we'll, we'll have friends at work and they need money. We know they're heathens. We know they're rejecting everything of God. But we'll bless them with everything we can for the hope of turning them around. Listen to what God says to do. If God tells you to bless that person, you go up there and say, God told me to do this. Won't you do that of guilt? You speak that word. The Lord came to me and he said I was to give you. Don't just say he was to give you some money. If God says bless them, how much? If God says 20, give them 20. If he says 50, give them 50. If he says 100, give them 100. Don't ask them. Don't ask them why. Whatever he says, you do it. And then you go up to him and say, God told me to give you and you give him what it is. Now, if God told you to tell him anything else, then you tell him. But you see, you've got to do it as a proclaiming thing. All three of these prophets came up to Ahab, thus says the Lord. They had a word from God. They delivered the word. They told him what to do. It's up to him to do what he's going to do from there. They didn't try and persuade him. They just spoke the word. Folks were doing too much persuading, not enough proclaiming. We do more proclaiming, we'll finally have a lot more results. But you're going to see some people take some step backwards sometimes. That's okay. That's all right. Listen to God. God will help you out. Father, we thank you for the help you give us in reaching the heathens that are around us. There's a mindset that they have, but you know how to break through. If they don't want to listen, the enemy would try and get us on to the place where we have to persuade them. No, we don't. It's not our job to persuade. It's our job to proclaim. Father, I thank you for the help that you give us to hear from you and to proclaim those words that you say, to be your voice. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.